It is 9-11, and uh, as Dwight was talking about that, that is one of those milestones in the history of the country that I think just about every one of us can tell you where you were at the time. I remember when it happened, I received information. My mom was already up and and contacted me, and and, uh, I remember my daughter was young at the time, and um, the first thing I could think to say, the only thing I thought to say when she walked in the room, she asked what was going on, a little girl at the time, and I just said, the world changed today, and it'll never be the same. And I didn't realize just how much that was true. And so what a change has taken place. Pretty amazing thing. So interesting as we look at that, we see the futility of man and his attempts to try to figure things out. We've seen the futility of, of uh, man's wisdom coming to nothing. And so we've been over these last few days talking about such things. And I thought it would be appropriate that we go to the book of Revelation this morning. We're going to look at three separate parts in this, and then I have a couple of other things. Maybe you've, if you've not studied really thoroughly through the book of Revelation, there is an interesting little relation that you have between something that is said in the very first verse of the book of Revelation that um, hopefully you've never seen before. I don't want to bore anybody, but it's, it's one of those fascinating things to me. So let's get to the book of Revelation chapter 1, and let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Grateful for your word. Grateful for the hope that is, is found in it, not just what you've done in the past, and not just what you're doing currently, but you have given us the understanding of what comes next. And uh, especially in a world that is becoming increasingly chaotic by the day, the idea that there is a blessed hope and an eternity when we behold your face helps us to keep from coming apart at the seams. How grateful we are. We thank you for your, your faithfulness to us, your enduring faithfulness. We pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and that your spirit would lead us in all truth this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Revelation, we read this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and he signified it by his angel to his servant John. What I want to point out in this very first, this, the second word that we hear, the revelation, or it's just revelation, it is the Greek word apocalypsis. Remember that because it's going to come up again. But it is the revealing, it's the unveiling, it is the lights being turned on and now we see. That is what the book of Revelation does. And so we know that through the rest of it as we read, it is, we, we understand the historical person of Jesus, the one who walked among us, and we know that he was the one that had compassion and mercy and love and grace and he did the miraculous. But he was one of, he, he was a human being. Perfect in all ways, never failed, but still he was a flesh and blood person. The same John that writes the Revelation writes in his first epistle that which was from the beginning, which we have, and then he goes on to explain. We've heard the things that he's said, and we've watched the things that he's done. We've handled him. We, we know that he was a real life person, and we're here to testify of who he is. And he begins the same way. Kind of, in, in, even in, uh, in his gospel, where he talks about, in the beginning was the word. And he testifies of who Jesus is. So we have that understanding in a historical sense. The book of Revelation is what tells us of what happens when he returns. And we're going to look at that as we progress through the book. But we begin this way by saying the apocalypsis. 
or the revealing, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so as we read through this, it is that the Father gave him as testimony, and then this was given to an angel, and the angel reveals all of the content of this book to John. And he says these things that must soon come to pass, and it's created so much confusion over the years. Here we are 2,000 years removed. How come it hasn't happened right here? It tells us that they must soon come to pass. The understanding of the original language is that when these things happen, it's where we get the word tachometer from. So any of you gearheads in here, you know that once you really hit the gas and it hits its stride, it happens quickly, right? So we know that when it happens, it happens quickly. That's what's being said here. So it speaks of this this witness who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written for the time is near. Same understanding. When it takes place, it will happen with an incredible rapid pace. Now, what we notice in this, blessed is he who reads. And I hear so often Pastors that would say, I'm not going to do the book of Revelation. It's very difficult for people to understand. It makes people nervous. And so it's better to just leave it there because there are so many different opinions about it. I'm told that there's a blessing that is implied here. Not just implied, it is expressly said. That if you will take the time to see what is here, you will be blessed in the process of it. Who does not want to know about the unveiling or the revealing of this person of Jesus when he comes again? We're really thankful that we know about him when he was here the first time. Now I do want to know what's coming when he shows up the next time. It's going to tell me about the condition of the world. Well, let's read on a little bit because verse 4 tells us, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. What an amazing statement that is. That speaks of the eternal nature of God. But hold that thought because it says right here, who was, who is, and who is to come. Who does that sound like to you? Sounds like Jesus, but read on. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from whom? Jesus. So from the Father to the Son is mentioned here, and from Jesus Christ, and here's his characteristics, the faithful witness, the one who was the testimony. He was a living, walking witness and a testimony, and he was faithful in all ways. We can be a witness, we can be a testimony, but to be referred to as faithful, it's not always the case with us. We can be fallible. He is perfect. He is faithful. He is also the firstborn from the dead, which makes him different from anyone else who ever had resurrected, because when he resurrected, he did not see death a second time. Look at the people that he raised from the dead. Lazarus, perfect example. We all know what happened with him. Jesus brings him back from from the dead, and not just started his heart beating again. We know that when a body is dead for days, there's nothing left to fix. You have to make it once again from whole cloth, which is exactly what he did. It is why if you go study that in chapter 11 of John, he delayed his coming just so that it would be obvious that some miraculous thing way beyond anything anybody could have imagined took place. He brought back that which was dead to life, but Lazarus saw death a second time. However, Jesus, when he resurrected, never died the second time. So he's the firstborn. Well, it tells us also that he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. He is the king above all kings. He is the majesty above all majesty. Now keep that in mind. Again, that's going to come up here in just a little bit. So he is the one who rules over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. 
If ever there was a question of who he is and his magnificence, there you have it right there. It helps us to understand, those of us who read this, who know him as Messiah the King, the one who has also paid for us with his blood, we are able to look at that and say amen. Look at what it says. And in, in response to that, I'm, I marvel at this. And he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And we can all say amen. amen. The idea that he would make us actually the, best, the better way to say it would be a kingdom of priests. Now, of course, this is the idea of ministering before him. The idea of a priesthood in the sense that we might have understood it from history. When, when this is all taking place, it's not like what we're thinking. This is eternal type stuff that he has made us into. And we will have these, these roles, if you will, throughout eternity. Well, look at what it says. Behold, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, as Zechariah tells us. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So, This is speaking of when he comes back, and we're going to look at that passage. It's found in chapter 19. All eyes do see him, and this is very different from what we see in the imagery that is given to us in 1 Thessalonians 4. That's very different because he meets us in the air, we meet him in the air, and we go back to where he is, as he promised in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. Well, that means that he receives the church to himself, but this that's being spoken of, he comes to the earth and establishes a kingdom. So, it tells us, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. This is Jesus now speaking. What does it say? He who is who was, and who is to come. He takes upon himself the same title that we see ascribed to the Father. Asserting his deity without having to make it a big deal, it's just a statement of fact. How amazing is that, huh? And then we read this in verse 18. I am he who lives and who was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen. And I have the keys to Hades and to death. Write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. We've just completed a a prophecy conference here, and I want to make sure that we understand this. It was something that I tried to emphasize quite a bit during my sessions, is that when God says things that have taken place in the past, and he tells you of things that are current, just know and pay attention, because he's going to tell you the things that are to come. Sometimes as consequence, and other times as promise. As we look at this to the church, it is not one of consequence, It is one of promise where he's going to set up and establish his kingdom. The church is not appointed to the wrath that is spoken of here. Well, if this is the apocalypsis and this is the unveiling and the revealing of Jesus, this is him being shown to the world and what is to come next, let's turn to chapter 5 of this book. I love the way that this is written out and I can't even for a moment imagine what this would be like because John is seeing this visually of something that would happen at least 2,000 years down the road and he's trying to come to grips with it. It's, it's so almost impossible for us to even begin to grasp what this must have looked like to him because it's all being shown to him and he's trying to get this imagery settled in his mind and I can see why he would have had the reaction that he has at verse 4. But let's read in verse 1. It says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat upon the throne, that being the Father, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Without going into a lot of detail, this, I believe, as many do, that this is kind of the title deed 
to the earth. And this is knowing that, that everything that had happened at Eden and, and all of what had taken place there and, and death entering in and all the rest of it. We know that the, the devil has been given a time when he has so much that he's able to do upon the earth. Here is where it gets taken back. So this is, if you will, the title deed. It is the will of what God wants to be coming next. And so he sees this scroll and it's sealed. It's written on the inside and on the, on the inside and the out, giving that idea of a legal document. So who's going to be the executor of this? Well, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seals? Now we're cheating because we already know the answer to the question. But imagine John as he hears this and as he's writing it down and it's being revealed moment by moment, this must seem like an insurmountable thing and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth that was able to open the scroll or to even look upon it, now, to look at the content of it. There was no one who was worthy. And so he sees this knowing that it is so close that someone would be able to do and execute the will of God, but there's no one. Nothing is, is, is happening. And so he sees in verse 4, so I wept much. Why? Because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll or to look upon it. And then verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll. To loose the seven seals. I'm trying to picture John as he sees this because he knows that that would be a title for Jesus. The line of the tribe of Judah. This is the one that he had spent the time with. This is the one who had shaped his entire world for those three plus years that he was with him. And he hears this title and I can only imagine as he sees it says that he turns to look. I'm thinking that he's figuring he's going to see Jesus which of course he does, but not as the way he would think. In verse 6, or in verse 7 rather, he says, I'm sorry, verse 6. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all of the earth. And then he came and he took the scroll out of his right hand and to him as the one he sat on the throne. Here Jesus is able to come. Can you imagine as he sees this, he hears the proclamation that behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. He turns to see and there he sees Jesus, the lamb as though slain. There is something that you've probably heard said before and I think it bears repeating. Of all the things that we'll see in, the, in eternity, the only thing man made would be what we did to the sun. Pretty amazing. He bears the scars. Now when he had taken, verse 8, this scroll from the uh, four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. If we ever want to consider that Jesus, we hear people all the time say, Jesus never claimed to be God and all the rest of it. Let's just make sure we understand this. God has no problem recognizing the deity of his own son because here in the heavens, Jesus is worshiped. No one would bow down before Anything that is not God here, Jesus is bowed down and worshipped right in the presence of God and God is fine with it. The Father would have no problems with his Son being worshipped for he is God. Fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang this new song. And there's the question of who are these 24 elders? Well, what we know, they have to be the redeemed of humanity because of the song that they sing. Look at this. This is a new song. And it's not as, it's the quality of this song 
that is what's new about it because of where it takes place and what is being said and to whom it is being addressed. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Jesus didn't die for angels. He died for humans. So those that could be singing the song of the redeemed must be, of course, humans. And so people like to debate, why 24? Is it dealing with apostles and the tribes? And there's the imagery that's there. People disagree on it. But we know these are the redeemed. This is the song of the redeemed. And then out of every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation, and you have made us once again kings and priests to our God, and we will reign on the earth. And so we see this opening of the scrolls. He is worthy and he is about to execute this document. Open its seals. And so we go from the seals and then to the trumpets and then to the bowls. We know how the rest of the book lays out. Well, as he does these things, let's remember the things that take place upon the earth are all of the executing, if you will, of those judgments. So how, how does it end? What is the culmination of these things? Chapter 19, let's turn there. So after we have the beginning of explaining who Jesus is and, and his, his unique characteristics in the first chapter, we know he delivers, if you will, the report card to the seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. We know that there is this move to the, the heavenly place to see the throne room of God at chapter 4. And then as we just saw in chapter 5, we get to that place of the scroll and the seals. And we've seen that. And then for all of those interval chapters from 6 all the way through 18, it shows what happens during those seven years. And then we come to chapter 19. And it says this in verse 11. Now I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon him was called, or yeah, sat upon him, uh, was called faithful, true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war, which makes him, of course, very different from any human, because we never do so in, in that way. He does all things in a perfect sense. Look at what it says in verse 12. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except for himself, and he was clothed with a robe that is dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth went a sharp sword, that with it he would strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe a name, and on his thigh written, says, King of kings, Lord of lords. King above all kings, Lord above all lords, or majesty above all majesties. Everyone answers to him. Now, I know that uh, Dwight is going to be going to Israel, and he's taken a bunch of you with him. One of the places that you'll get to see, probably your first or second day in the country, is that you'll get to Mount Carmel. And when you when you see it lay out in front of you from well from my perspective or I might have to turn around to make it understandable but if uh, if we were looking from Carmel down at the the valley of Armageddon actually to this side from your perspective as you look down the valley you'll see Megiddo and that's where Beth Shean is that's where Saul died at at, uh, um, at uh, uh, Gilboa that all is down the you know, it's the right side of the valley. But to the other side, you see Nazareth just there in the, in the distance. And it's an amazing thing when you stop to consider that where he grew up overlooks the exact same valley where this takes place. 
Now, if Jesus was a young man, and this is all speculation, it's just the way that my brain works, I can imagine him looking over a valley that, if we remember, because he's the creator of all things, that Jesus himself had created everything that he's able to see with his eyes, and now he is able to overlook a valley that, when you look over the horizon that way, he knows that he'll give his life on a cross only to come back and end humanity right there. It's an amazing thing when you take it all in and recognize that this is so well thought out and so crafted and so, uh, so understandable to us in hindsight. But imagine this, that he overlooks and grows up in the valley knowing that he's going to come back and do this. Such an amazing thing. And the greatness of his love is demonstrated that, again, just over the horizon at Jerusalem. So as to avoid the necessity for that, he would give his life away. That man could be reconciled to him and yet they would choose otherwise and this is what they will come to. This is not for the church. This is for those who would rebel against him. And you can read the rest of the chapter and he makes war there in the valley of Armageddon. It is an amazing thing to behold with your eyes. And so I really do recommend if you can get to Israel once in your lifetime, you will start to read passages like this and say, I know exactly how it lays out. I see it. It's a beautiful place to behold. I, I love looking at it, but I understand also the, the impressive part of it. When you're on Carmel looking down at it, you're there where Elijah had his contest with the prophets of Baal. You're looking at it. And so you're able to take all of these things in. Well, Revelation gives us the understanding of now that he has done the work of redemption and, and since then he has been doing the work of the high priest and he intercedes on behalf of the church and he ministers to us and he does all of those things that the book of Hebrews lays out for us. Now what we see is him coming back in the next of his administrations, if you will, when he comes back as the conquering king of kings and the Lord of lords to establish a kingdom that lasts a thousand years to be replaced by one that goes on forever. Well, as we consider all of that, the apocalypsis, the revealing. I want to show you someplace else where that same exact word in the Greek is used. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. This is why sometimes understanding the original language is very helpful to us. Because without asking for a show of hands, many of us in here might think revelation and using it as an application to Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we might think that that is completely unique to the, the book of Revelation. That's the only place that it would be used as a way of a title for Jesus. I want to show you another place where it's used exactly the same way. But it's going to deal with him as a child. Well, in verse 25 of Luke chapter 2, we read this. Luke 2, 25. By the way, if I could real quick. There is nothing that is more music to the ears of a pastor than to say, turn with me and to hear this. Seriously. Now, I know some of you are saying, oh, but I'm turning. I'm just using my little iPhone or, you know, whatever you're using. Well, great. Any of you, I always say this. Any of you that are really good at developing apps, make an app that makes the page turning sound. You'll make a mint. I want a little, I'd like some residual from that for giving you the idea, but you... Understand. <laughs> At verse 25 of chapter 2, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just, he was devout, and he was awaiting the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. 
You imagine that? Every single day you wake, you know that you're going to make it through that day at least. And if Messiah comes, then you know that that may be it. But you know for sure that you will not slip from this life until you have had a chance to see what had been promised for millennia. And you'll see him. So he's, of course, at verse 26, verse 27 rather, it says, So he came by the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, he blessed God, and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for I have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples to bring a, a, a light to bring, what's the word there? Would you be surprised to know that that is the apocalypsis? Same word. A light to bring apocalypsis to the Gentiles. Glory to your people, Israel. How wonderful that it is used to describe him in both places. As an infant, here Simeon is able to say, Jesus is the apocalypsis. He's the unveiling, the revealing to the Gentiles. And he is going to establish the kingdom that was promised to David that is to the Jews. He would be that king to them. He would be that Messiah. He would be the one that was promised ever since forever. He's that one to them. But to the Gentiles, he would be the one that would open their eyes. He would be the apocalypsis. So here Jesus as the infant, the infant is referred to as the apocalypsis. The unveiling, the revealing, the one who turns on the light and helps you to see. As an infant, he is referred to. And then we see him in his greatness at his return in Revelation chapter 1. The exact same word in definition, but depending on which angle you look at because of his age, what a difference, huh? So it goes on to say this. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken. And Simeon blessed them said to Mary, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Boy, is that prophetic. That is exactly how it played out. And of course, we know that uh, much of his time in, in his life of growing up, we don't know a great deal about. We know that by the time that he begins to gather his disciples to himself, we have that last three and a half years, and it's incredibly profound. And it was actually playing out all of these things that he says. As Simeon says from verses 29 to 32, that is what we see in the Gospels. And then it, 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 because of him, really, this is continuing to happen all the way into our history because the name of Jesus creates this kind of a, of a demonstration and a, and a showing forth of the hearts of men. Now, Back home, when my pastor was still alive, he used to say this, and I used to love it. He used to say, you hear so many people talk about Jesus, but usually it seems if you're a little uncomfortable talking about him, you'll refer to him as the Lord, or you'll refer to him as Christ, or you'll refer to him as something else. And I guess it made me almost neurotic, and so ever since then, I always want to talk about him and mention him by his name, Jesus. And if you ever notice this, try this at home. It's a neat little experiment if you don't know how this all works. When you go to talk to your family and friends and especially get around unbelievers, 
you can talk about Christ and you can talk about the Lord and all that stuff and it'll be a little uncomfortable. Start throwing the name Jesus around and you'll change the atmosphere in the room. Everything changes when you start to be specific about who we're talking about here. So Simeon is able to say to the parents, he's going to change the world. He's going to change the way that people even discuss things. He's going to manifest hearts. He's going to change the way that people will interact with one another. And it's still going on to this day. He manifests hearts then. He manifests hearts now. There is this also amazing thing that, uh, that when we're in Israel, turn with me to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. One of the places that we love to get to, one of my favorite uh, spots really in the Galilee area is when we get to Capernaum. Capernaum is, uh, is a word that means the village of comfort, Capernaum. So it's one of those places I love getting to because when I first heard the explanation of the name, it was said once again while we were at the place that is the village of comfort. And I know that it immediately, uh, when I heard somebody make mention of it, that it's the village of comfort, my mind immediately went to actually Isaiah chapter 40 where it says, comfort, yes, comfort ye my people. And that's where the comfort there is used as a verb and not as a noun, the village of comfort. It's used as an action. So comfort my people. And it's a pronouncement of the Messiah. So I thought, isn't that interesting that the place where we know that so much of what Jesus did of his miraculous things and all the rest, isn't it amazing that he did that in the village of comfort? In the village of of the place where he did the things that he did, Jesus being that peace, that comfort that comes from him. It just, it was such an amazing thing and not just a play on words, it was actually the real thing. Well, when we get there, there's this really cool sign that's there and it talks about Capernaum as being the village where Jesus lived. And so you, you realize that you're standing in, in the actual places, but there is this, this really cool passage that we have here in Isaiah before us, but we know this, it's getting close to Christmas time. I know. What do you mean? Come on, September. Go look around the stores. So they have, it's almost like they, they should just put it on a rolling kind of thing. Put out all the stuff for October and then have it scroll forward and fall onto the floor. And then you've got the Thanksgiving stuff and it falls and then there's Christmas. Well, we're going to see this on our Christmas cards in no time in verse 6. Of Isaiah 9, we read this, unto us, a child is born, unto us, a son is given. We read this every year, and the government will be upon his shoulder. There is one thing that I, I want to make sure that we point out in light of what we saw in Revelation. Unto us, a child is born. The child that was born to us, of course, we know Jesus. But let's look at the rest of that part because it says, unto us, a son is given. So yes, born as a child, but there is someone to whom we will answer because a father gave to us a son. Not just any child, but the child of a king. And we'll stand and give account for what did we do with this child that was given to us because he was the son of a king. You get the point? It's a big deal. Unto us a child is born, but unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful. His name will be called Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with, with judgment, justice. From that time forward, even forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts 
will perform this. I want to make sure we look at something that's very important for us here. It's in verse 7 in the seventh part. It's upon the throne of David that he will be. And that is something that, once again, it is a fulfillment of prophecy taken from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Write down the reference, and we won't go look at it because we still got a little bit to do. But let me just give you a real quick rundown of the whole thing. This is where David wants to build a temple. And, of course, what's Nathan going to say? Man, everything that you do turns to gold. Of course, God's with you. Go ahead and do it. What does God have to do but come back to Nathan and say, uh-uh, I didn't tell you to tell him that. You're going to break his heart, but I need you to go back and tell him No. You're not going to build it. Who is going to build it is going to be your son. And I'm going to establish a kingdom through him. And so because of that, there will be a kingdom that will be forever through him. Now, there's a complication of the line and all the rest of that, but it is the idea of an establishment of a house. So what Nathan is supposed to go back to David and say, look, here's the thing. You're not going to build a house for God, but God's going to build one for you. And it's going to be an enduring kingdom. So it would come down through the line of David, but not through Solomon. It was going to come down through his son. It would end up coming down through Nathan. And so it would be an a untarnished line, if you will. It comes down through Mary and not through Joseph. Anyway, fascinating study if you've never had a chance to look at it. But nonetheless, there's a promise that Jesus would be the one that would sit on this forever kingdom that God promised through the line of David. And here Jesus will assume that place. The government will be upon his shoulder How so? Because he's just a child. Yes, he's a child, but he's a child of the king. And he is the son, and he will administrate the very kingdom of his father. He's the everlasting. Well, when we read that, let's look at the beginning of this chapter. Look at verse 1. This is the setup before you get to verse 6. So Isaiah chapter 9, let's look at the first verse. Nevertheless, The gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, for the people, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light has shone. You have multiplied the nations, you have increased it in joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, and men rejoice as when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of this burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle, the garments rolled in blood, will be used for burning and the, uh, the fuel of fire. That idea that Jesus would once again, ease all the burden when he comes back and sets up his kingdom. And then notice that sets up for us this, for unto us a child is born. But it is what you see at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. You see it there in Capernaum and you recognize that this is where God said that it would be. It is an amazing thing. We're going through John chapter 7 and uh, into eight on Sunday mornings back home. And the people that were contending with Jesus said, what's going to be coming out of Galilee? We know who this guy is. He's from Galilee. The Messiah is not going to come out of Galilee. Maybe they forgot what's right here in Isaiah 9. It is in Galilee. That's where God is going to demonstrate. And there is going to be a light that is going to come. And unto us a son is born. So isn't this an amazing thing? We see Jesus at his birth shown as this one who will bring illumination, revelation, apocalypsis, as a baby. 
Isaiah prophesied that this child would be born and that ultimately the entirety of God's kingdom will rest upon his shoulders. And right here it tells us where he comes from. Galilee, beyond, just nowhere close to where all the power structure was. So here he is. Let's go back to Revelation very quickly as I start to wind this up. I'm going to do two things here and see if I can do this in about seven minutes. (laughs) Revelation, let's get back to about where we just were at chapter 19. This work of Jesus is such a fascinating thing to me. Again, and I just see that the care with which God reveals these things from his birth to the time that he was there on earth, illuminating to people the truth. Remember, all throughout John is what we're going through back home over and over and over and over again. He is saying, I'm not here to establish anything for myself. I'm doing what the Father has sent me to do. All the work that I do, all the words that I say, everything about what I am here to do is because the Father has sent me to do these things. Basically, a translation, I'm not a free agent. I am here doing exactly and executing that which the Lord has sent me here to do. My Father has sent me. And so we see it was prophesied in in Isaiah. It was prophesied to Simeon. And Simeon's able to identify exactly who this one was that God had promised. And then we see him in Revelation as the one who does these things. Well, as we get to chapter 19, you read the rest of it. We get to chapter 20, and then we know that the millennium begins. And uh, I wanted to point this out to you because I find this to be amazing. By the time that we get to verse 11... As he begins to set these things up at the end of the thousand years, I want to show you something I think is just amazing because Paul had some information that I find fascinating. Let's read this, verse 11 of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose face earth and heaven fled away and there was no place found for them. And then I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in those books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them, and they were judged each according to his works. Look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. Death and Hades, that is the grave, that is the power that that is held over the body and over the soul. Even they themselves, though they're not persons, are spoken of as though they were. The defeat is so thorough and so complete that even death itself, death of the soul, death of the body, are done away with and Jesus casts them away into the lake of fire. That's important Because we look at that and say, oh, well, that's what the book of Revelation teaches. John seeing it for the first time. Did you know somebody else saw it? His name is Paul. Chapter 15 of the book of 1 Corinthians. And I remember the first time that I saw this, I about fell out of my chair. I had never noticed it before. And it was when we were studying through 1 Corinthians the last time through I'd never really noticed it in relation to what we see in chapter, uh, in chapter 20 there of Revelation. Now, why do I bring all of this up? Here's why, very simply said. I bring all of this up because I want us to come to an understanding of the greatness and the majesty of Jesus. 
and what he was at his birth as prophesied long before he was born and the fulfillment of everything that he had, he had been promised to be. He did so when he lived among us. He does so even now in, in the idea of revealing and he will be revealed as the conquering king of kings and lord of lords in Revelation. All coming full circle. Well, we've seen what ends up happening that because of his work, he is able to put death to death. Think about that. That is just... How cool is that? Does anybody have an answer for this? I honestly, this is where my brain starts to short circuit and I just think, my God does such things. He's magnificent. He's great. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Again, some 30 roughly years before what, we, what John ends up seeing. And we think that all the stuff that we see in the book of Revelation is, is exclusive to the book of Revelation. Man, Paul saw some stuff. The Lord revealed some amazing things to him. Look at what it says. But now Christ is risen from the dead. This is a whole chapter that is given completely to resurrection. And it is eschatological. It has end times kind of, it has eschatology in it, which I'm going to show you. We think of resurrection. Okay, great. If he hasn't resurrected, we haven't resurrected. And if he didn't, then we have no promises. And, and we're above all people most pitiful, right? That's what he says in the first parts of this. And so now he's able to say, look, we are risen from the dead. And it has become, and he has become the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. Again, we've already covered that. Those that died, died a second time. Jesus never did. Well, he says, for since man came death... And by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all will be made alive. But each one according to his order. Now this is important, let's pay attention. There is a chronology of things. We certainly know it from the book of Revelation. We know that there is a way that this happens in a systematic and a chronological sense. But each in its order. Remember, Jesus the first fruits. That is one of the titles that is given to him in chapter 1 of Revelation. Right? Well, afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then he goes on. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom of God uh, to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. Chapter 19. Yes? Tracking with me? Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That's not just people. That is chapter 20, chapter 19 and chapter 20, when he puts all things under him, right? Look at verse 26. The last enemy that will be destroyed is what? Death. Oh. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is expected. This is a great thing. Even death being put to death, Paul speaks about it. John is the one who gives us the further detail about it. But even in this resurrection passage, it's telling us about the things that are coming down the road. When he brings all things, when all are brought back to him and he establishes his kingdom, the idea that he puts death to death is such an amazing thing. 9-11 Look at the carnage that happened because of this day. Look at the misery that is happening around us and has happened since Eden. The idea of death and that there is nothing that is permanent anymore. That is not what God had designed in the first place. I thank God that I know who Jesus is. That when he reestablishes things, 
All of the temporary garbage of this life is done. Nothing left. No remnant of what was. No temporary, no nothing. Everything gets reverted back to where it was in the beginning. Folks, if you don't know him this way today, I want you to recognize that to the believer, this is what it is. We have been under a death sentence. When Jesus said, I came to give my life, or I come to give my life as a ransom for many, that means that all of mankind, every person who has ever been born, is under a death sentence, and it's because of sin. And the person who owns that, if you will, not only because of the action, we own it, but because of that, we are separated from God by that sin, and basically we can say the devil owns us at that point. I want us to understand what happened at the cross, the best way that I can explain it, was a raw, naked display of power. The devil thought he had won. Jesus gave his life knowing that he would take it back so that he could come to the devil and say, that one belongs to me and take me by force. And nothing could withstand him. Nothing. He offers that salvation to mankind because of his great love. He offers it to you today. There are people that I know that come, I think they still do that up here. You guys have people for prayer and whatnot. If you're not settled in where you are with him, please don't leave this place today. If the Lord has not come and taken you away and ransomed you and taken you by force from the enemy who owns you now, you can settle that today and it has eternal consequence. You can be a child of the king and that when he comes for the church and receives us to himself, you're a part of that number. You don't have to deal with the things from chapter 5 all the way up through the, the, uh, the conquering that takes place as we read in Revelation. Let him be that one that has brought revelation to your eyes and opened the truth to you. You can do that today. So as we're dismissed, uh, you can come forward and we'll have, we'll have uh, the ability to talk with you and, and make sure that you have settled this account between you and the Lord. He went to great lengths that you could know that he is worthy of your trust. And that he is able to do everything that he promised. He's a revelation to those who seek him. Father, we thank you. We're grateful for your faithfulness to us. We are grateful for your love, for your kindness, for all that you do for those that come to you. You never cast anyone away. You call us openly to yourself. You've asked us that we would lay our lives down. So we pray, Father, that as each person has heard what we've been looking at this morning, read the words that are there in the text heard the things that have been said. All of us are without excuse. My prayer, Lord, is that you would move upon the hearts of each person. If there is anyone in here who has not made their peace with you, that this would be that last day, that never would they be able to say such a thing again, that they could walk in the newness of life that you promised, that you paid such a great price to ensure. We thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word that opens our eyes. Thank you for Jesus, the illumination, the apocalypsis. Thank you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.